Welcome to Leadership Conversations by TSBR, the podcast of the Sustainability Board Report, where we explore the latest insights in sustainable leadership, ESG practices, and corporate governance. Each month, we bring you insightful interviews with business and civil society leaders, educators, and advisors who are at the forefront of driving sustainable change. We delve into the challenges, strategies, and innovations that are transforming businesses and boards. Join us as we uncover thought-provoking discussions and actionable insights that will inspire you to take your own leadership journey towards a sustainable future. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast and be part of our growing community committed to making a positive impact. Visit our website at boardreport.org for additional resources and stay up to date with the latest reports, intelligence and conversations. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Leadership Conversations by TSBR. I'm Frederick Otto. I'm the Executive Director of the Sustainability Board Report. Before we get started with today's guest, we had a few changes to the look of the Sustainability Board Report, as you might have noticed if you were on our website recently. And we are now essentially operating in three distinct units, and that is the Research and Policy Center, where we produce reports and promote sustainable practices in leadership and governance, including ESG engagement boards. Uh, this is also where we're housing our annual report that we are mostly known for. The second is thought leadership, where we share insights and perspectives on the latest trends and issues in sustainable leadership, corporate governance, and ESG engagement. And of course, that's also the home of our podcast. And this is also where we are now featuring a new webinar series. And then lastly, ITSBR, our new intelligence unit, where we provide customized research and analysis to help stakeholders assess organizations' performance as it relates to their sustainability commitments and endure accountability. This is essentially our very data-driven advisory arm that we are using to provide customized research to interested individuals or parties in other news, there's a lot of talk around uh, AI, of course, and we hosted a fantastic webinar on the board's role in governing the business use of AI, where I was joined by Karen Silverman, the CEO of the Cantalus Group, Professor Deirdre Ahern, who is the Director of the Technologies at the Law and Society Research Group at the Trinity College Dublin Law School, and Mitra Best who is a partner in the technology impact leader at PWC. It's a one-hour webinar, which is accessible now on our website. And in this session, we are providing a foundational understanding of what the implications of AI to businesses, but specifically to boards are, and the implication to directors' duties. Then the CSRD initiative of the uh, European Union is all the talk now and there was a great article in Greenbiz how the new EU directive will rewrite ESG reporting. The link is on our website as well under the newsletter section and I also really enjoyed a article by Agenda headlined Investors Name and Shame Directors Over Climate Concerns and the investor group Climate Action 100 Plus and shareholder advocacy organization Majority Action this month published lists of individual board directors 
whom the groups are recommending investors vote against during this year's proxy season. And uh, that's a straightforward, very interesting read. And on that, it's probably time to introduce our guest for today. Today we feature Andrew Behar. He is the CEO of, as you saw, the United States leading nonprofit practitioner of shareholder advocacy and engagement. With a 30-year track record of success, as you saw, advances values-aligned investing and uses shareholder power to compel companies to reduce material risk on issues including climate change, toxins in the food system, ocean plastics, diversity, equity and inclusion, racial justice and wage equity. Previously, Andrew was a documentary filmmaker and entrepreneur founding startups that developed innovative physiological monitoring devices and grid-scale fuel cells. He's an inventor on five patents and was recently named as one of the purposeful 50 true changemakers who deliver on social justice, environmental protection, diversity, inclusion, racial equality, and gender and pay equity. Andrew, it's a great pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I've just read out your bio, which is nothing short of impressive, of course, but could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your career journey, and how you got into ESG shareholder advocacy, and then the work that you currently focus on? Yeah, the work that I'm doing now really is a culmination of, well, really, I guess, three different careers. I started out, as you mentioned, I working in media as a documentary filmmaker, but also developing a lot of innovative technology platforms in the communication space. I had a, a small agency in New York City and for about 15 years developed a lot of again, technology, a lot of early digital media tools and interactive networks for governments. So I was doing both that kind of commercial work as well as the documentary work. That evolved into starting doing startups and licensed a group of patents around physiological monitoring. We built a company. We made a shirt that essentially monitored your health like you were in the ICU as you wandered around or you were on playing sports or, or at a movie theater. That also, I've always been an environmentalist and I've always been very concerned about climate change. And on a, on a very personal level, did some organizing in California. I moved there when we had, my wife and I had a family and uh, worked on some of the campaigns on what's called Big Green, as well as organizing our town when a big corporation wanted to put a toxic waste dump uh, right at the mouth of the valley of the town. So started to learn about corporate power in that way. The third, my third act here, I had a friend who was actually the founder of As You Sow and me to take a look at the organization and to write a strategic plan. It was in 2010 which I did, and the board asked me to stay on as a CEO. So I've been executing on that plan since uh, since 2010. So 13 years of uh, really going deep on corporate responsibility, on shareholder advocacy, and, and that's where I, I am today. Can you tell us a little bit more about As You Saw's purpose and what it is exactly that you are trying to achieve? Sure. So As You Saw has been around since for 31 years. It was founded in 1992. And its intent is corporate accountability. So we start with research. We develop key performance indicators on issues right now, working on racial justice, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. 
we developed 61 key performance indicators. This was after George Floyd murder in the United States. And we didn't have a way of actually differentiating between leaders and laggards. Uh, we've written, I guess we're nine years into looking at executive compensation. We've published nine reports on what we call the 100 most overpaid CEOs of the S&P 500. We have a report card on pesticides and on regenerative ag. And so we, again, develop 35 key performance indicators. And then we do the research on plastics, on recycling, on sustainability. And that's based particularly looking at ocean plastics, net zero, linking, exec, and also executive compensation linked to emissions reduction. So it's a whole lot of different research reports that we do every year. And but what we do with the reports is it helps us, again, differentiate between a leader and a laggard company. And so then we reach out to the companies and we sit down with them and we say, look, you're scoring a seven and your direct competitor scoring a 12. Here's the three things they're doing that you're not. Here's the cost of becoming competitive. Here's the risk of doing nothing. Basically, your brand will be associated with, let's say, not having a racial justice program or not having a climate transition plan or polluting, you know, putting plastics in the ocean, whatever the particular issue is. And so in a very business-like way, we sit shoulder to shoulder with these companies. We show them the data. Generally, they agree with us and they say, you guys are like McKinsey for free. Let's go get going. Let's, uh, you know, we want to become more competitive. We want investors to invest in us and to see us getting a better score. So last year we had 196 engagements. Uh, 97 companies said, great job. Uh, and 99 did not. So the ones who did not, we escalated. We filed what's called a shareholder resolution. In the United States, it's a 500 word document that you file six months before the annual general meeting. And every shareholder gets to vote on it. So you broaden the discussion to all shareholders. And then there's a vote. If you get a vote that's, I know these are non-binding votes, very important. So for instance, you get a 96% vote at a major company. Then you sit down with them again and go, look, 96% of your shareholders think this is really important. And generally the board says, yeah, this is very important. And so they take action. But oftentimes you get a 6% vote and the company goes, you know, this is really important and they take action as well. So again, you don't get too hung up on the actual vote. It's really part of the conversation. It's part of a new idea being brought to the company, a identifying a new material risk they might not have seen from their vantage point. So that, that's really how it works. We also do a lot of work exploring what's inside a mutual fund. We believe that people want to invest aligned with their values. And so people who are invested in funds and ETFs, uh, exchange traded funds, they have no idea what's inside this basket of stocks. The prospectus only shows you the top 10. So back in 2015, we started to explore this and we created investyourvalues.org, which every month we update 3000 mutual funds so people can see exactly which fossil fuel companies they own, deforestation, private prisons, weapons, all different sorts of things as part of a transparency education project that we do. So those are the main things that As You So does. We, but we really work from a shareholder standpoint to help companies to really compel them to reduce material risk for all stakeholders.
I have a follow-up question to that, Andrew, and we'll talk about the particular issues a little bit more just in a second. But what is your exact role in the stakeholder ecosystem? Obviously, we hear a lot about employee engagement, clients demanding certain product changes, suppliers standing up more as well. But organizations obviously tend to listen mostly to shareholders still. So do you team up with money managers? Do you get them on board before you run initiatives? Or do you approach organizations independently and then get other stakeholders on board to support these proposals? So again, going back to the research, we we always start with a deep research and and the research is gathered with the companies. We do surveys of companies. We sit down with companies. We also do desk research on what they have publicly disclosed. So let's just take you know, your first issue of looking at, say, diversity in the workforce. So we did a report last year that looked at 277 companies, what are called EEO1 reports, Equal Employment Opportunity Reports. It's about diversity. And what we saw was that companies with greater diversity outperformed on 14 key financial metrics. So when we then went and asked companies to disclose their diversity, equity, inclusion information, it was because investors wanted to see which companies may outperform based on all this data that we had gathered and all of the findings in this report. So we sat down with a lot of different, you know, with money managers, with investors, with all different folks and said, you know, here's our report. What do you think? And they said, well, we should go get everybody to start to disclose. So we started to file shareholder resolutions or we engaged the company said, please disclose. We sent letters, 3000 companies and the ones who didn't, we then filed resolutions because they were holding back material information. Material information is a key concept. That's information that investors need to know to make a buy or sell decision. Now, the definitions of materiality, there's a group in the United States called the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. They establish on a sector-by-sector basis what is material. Now, they are combining forces with groups in Europe to create ISBE, the International Sustainable Standards Board. And I think it really in a matter of weeks, maybe a month, ISBE will be starting to disclose these new global definitions of materiality, which is really going to help everybody. Because when the companies know what is material, now they know what needs to be disclosed. And in the U.S., that is a legal uh, mechanism that investors can ask a company under SEC rules to disclose things that they need, information they need to make that decision. So really, it's working collaboratively with investors who want this information, with companies who also want to disclose. Now, Another point is right now, disclosure, particularly on climate change information, greenhouse gas emissions, there's no requirement that it's accurate. And so a lot of companies put out misleading information. That's material information. So, so investors are investing based on, well, inaccurate and misleading information. The SEC has a new rule that will require companies to disclose accurately, have it verified by a third party, and put it in a standardized format. Investors need comparability. It's you think about it in you know 1934 when the SEC was established, it was really the output was the audited financial statement, standardized format, standardized information you could compare apples to apples. Well, climate information, diversity information, 
These are all material disclosures that need to be in a standardized format and need to be accurate. So that's really a big change that's happening is when the SEC rule comes out, it will reestablish trust between companies and their beneficial owners. And right now that trust is really not so great because of a lot of misleading information. So I think we're on the, just really on the cusp of a whole new age of, again, reestablishing trust between companies and their owners and having a free flow of information that's going to allow the companies to really know where they stand, to have clear metrics. And so I think we're really on the cusp of a renaissance of, of corporate governance. Talking about materiality and the different issues, you have mentioned a few DEI, climate change, executive compensation. Do you recall a particular initiative that was most memorable or that you are most proud of, shall we say? Well, I'll tell you, it's a short story really about how this works, how the work evolves. So in 2017, we had been doing a lot of research on a chemical called glyphosate. It's also known as Roundup. It's sprayed in the United States on wheat, oats, beans, right before they harvest the crops. Now it's a known carcinogen. The World Health Organization has, well, it's banned in Europe. So no one in Europe is getting this in their pasta and in their bread, but in the United States, we don't have the precautionary principle. You know, in Europe, you can't put anything that's toxic onto food unless you prove it's safe. In the US, it's the opposite. You can put anything on the food, you have to prove that somebody's harmed. So we sat down with Kellogg and we said, look, your entire supply chain, all the farmers you're buying from are spraying this stuff. We think this is a risk to the Kellogg brand because everyone is eating it every day in their bowl of special K. And here's what just happened, that there were these two lawsuits and it was for people who were spritzing glyphosate in their backyard to knock down the weeds. One of them settled for 200 million, one for 400 million because the people got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma a form of cancer. And we said, this is going to be bigger than tobacco because again, people are being exposed to it every day. So the company looked at this very seriously and we worked with their scientists. And over the course of two years, they realized, you know, this is, this is not a good thing to be poisoning our customers. So what that led to in 2019, they signed a pledge that said, we're going to eliminate glyphosate from our entire supply chain. We have to step it in you know, over a couple of years, but we said that, that is reasonable. And so in 2019, they were the only company addressing this. And what happened is now, by the way, I, I didn't mention, but part of the escalation was we filed several shareholder resolutions during this point, just to compel this change to happen while they were deciding. So it was a public statement that the company we wanted, shareholders thought this was important and the company was considering it. 2019, they signed the pledge. So we, we withdrew our resolutions. We stopped filing resolutions. What happened then was, well, customers started realizing, well, Kellogg's food is probably safer than the other competitors. They started getting more market share. Investors said, oh, Kellogg's getting more market share. I want to put my money there. They started to get more attention from investors. So when we, so we did this report in 2021, in 2019, Kellogg was the only one. In 2021, half of all of the food companies were doing pesticide reduction. We're moving into regenerative agriculture. General Mills became a leader, signed a pledge to do regenerative ag through their entire supply chain. Now that was linked to getting a more resilient supply chain because of climate change, washing away 
all the soil in industrial ag. So this evolved. So 2021, we suddenly had half of the food companies in the U.S. were making this major shift. And now we're actually updating the report. It'll come out toward the end of 2023. But in engagements with all these companies, what we're seeing is a shift of the entire sector. Now, this was a risk that was identified by shareholders. And it was a risk the company took time to research, but saw that it would be beneficial to all stakeholders. Stakeholders, including their employees, are much proud to be working there at a company that's addressing these risks. At their, uh, their customers certainly are getting less toxins in the products. The communities where they operate, the farms, are not being aerial sprayed with a known carcinogen and a reproductive toxicant, by the way. So farm-adjacent communities are not being so negatively impacted and their entire supply chain. So all the stakeholders are benefiting and ultimately shareholders are benefiting because you have a more valuable company. So that's an example of how what we do works. That's a great story. And it illustrates as well how it just needs a leader to step up and start doing this. You just mentioned litigation at the beginning. They were potentially opening themselves up to litigation if they wouldn't get a grip on it. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think we're seeing more and more litigation here in Europe. The UK is very hot on the cases of advertising that could be considered greenwashing. We hear narratives of purpose washing now. What is your outlook for litigation and directors potentially being drawn into that and being sued on a personal level as well, being negligent of their duties? A director, a board director of a public company's job is to set strategy and then incentivize executives to execute that strategy. The board reports to the shareholders. So the shareholders are really the last backstop to helping the company to avoid risk. And that system works pretty well with the exception of when there may be one particular owner that owns such a large portion that the power structure, like for instance, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he has a 10 to one voting preference. So no matter what all the shareholders recommend, no matter what the board recommends, he is an authoritarian regime. He can decide that I don't want to deal with misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, child pornography, or sex trafficking. Yeah, if he wanted to, he could do it, but he has complete control of the company. So you got to separate the companies where there's a single person that has no oversight and that to the companies that actually function the way they were designed to function, which is oversight, shareholders oversight of the board, the board oversight of the executives. And what's really important, the critical link is the compensation of the executives. When the board sets compensation that is linked to the strategic goals, and those goals might be a sustainable goal, for instance, a climate transition plan or diversity, equity, inclusion, or you know, workforce composition, workers' rights, all those sorts of things. When an executive is going to be actually earning a bonus based on those things, they get it done. CEOs are really good at getting stuff done, but if, if there's no linkage, they're not going to get it done. It's not a priority. The board is sending a signal that's not a priority. We did an analysis last year looking at companies, major emitters, this is about climate change, their compensation and how it's linked to emissions reduction. 
Now, every company checked the box and said, it's linked. So that's just step one. But we have a team of executive compensation experts, and they looked inside and they found that a lot of the linkages were less than 1%. So the signal was, it's not that important, but we want to check the box. And so the companies really did make no progress. So very important to look at how the compensation packages are structured and that the things you want to accomplish are incentivized. So you asked me about litigation though. And so when shareholders feel something's important and the board sends that signal, it's not really that important and the executives don't execute on it, then you have to look at this and say, the board's not doing their oversight properly. And there are avenues to then address that. Now, one of those avenues is, well, we can vote no confidence on the board and we can run new board directors. And we do that as necessary if we need to. We can escalate to what's called a shareholder derivative action. If the board's acted in a real breach of fiduciary duty, then an investor, an owner of, of a share of this company can stand in the shoes of the company and can sue the board for this breach. And as you so has done this quite a few times, we've done this at Halliburton, done this at Duke Power, the largest power company, at the Southern Company we did, First Energy. Uh, we've got four derivative actions happening right now. It's an extreme case. In the case of like First Energy, you've got a board of directors that got a a billion dollars from the Ohio government to essentially refurbish a nuclear reactor. And they spent the money on stock buybacks instead. And they all got very, very wealthy. And as shareholders, we felt that that was a real breach. And so we had to escalate to that level. So things like that do happen. And again, the shareholders are the backstop. In terms of greenwashing leading to litigation, it depends on how misleading it is. It's there's just like levels to it. And also there's a lot of legal precedent. So I think that there's ways to work with a board to actually find a path. The board doesn't want to be in that position. And they, and in terms of getting legally sued, there's some that are covered under directors and officers insurance, DNO insurance. And then there's others that are outside of it. And so again, it just depends on a, it's a really on a case by case basis that we look at very, very closely because you get into one of these things, they take a great deal of resources, a lot of time, a lot of energy. And it starts with books and records. You start by saying, we want to see board minutes for the last three years on this particular subject. And then once you see what's actually going on behind the scenes, then you see whether there's been some kind of a breach. But again, that's a real extreme case. And we hope that every company that we meet with, they say, wow, thank you for your research. Let's go get busy. That's to us the best possible solution. We don't ever want to have to file another shareholder resolution because that, again, takes more resources. We don't want to have to run a board slate or have to have litigation. We think, you know, we're coming into this situation, into a relationship where we're bringing value, we're bringing an objective viewpoint. We want the company to succeed. We are the beneficial owners. Of course, we want the company to succeed and outperform. So again, the ideal circumstance would be that 100% of the companies we engage say, thank you, great idea. Let's go get busy solving these problems, reducing risk for all stakeholders. Fantastic, Andrew. And it's really interesting, the approach that you take. And my takeaway really is that close engagement with the organizations. And what stuck with me is you guys are like McKinsey for free. I relationships. I got to tell you, so many of these, I mean, some of these companies we have been engaging with for 20 years, literally 
the same people for decades. They know us. They know our intent. We've worked with them on so many issues. And the people inside the company is what's really interesting because oftentimes we're dealing with a corporate social responsibility person who has an, their own internal agenda. They want the company to get better on these certain issues. And so we we may agree with them. We may, And so it's a very collaborative process. It's, it, a lot of people think it's very oppositional, but actually dealing with the human beings inside the companies, these companies are not just you know entities, they're made of people. And the people want to talk, they want to see our research, they want to understand our data, they want it. They also want their company to outperform. They want to be proud of where they work. And so we really take that to heart. And it's really about the relationships. So that's what we base all of our work on. Couldn't agree more. It always comes down to the individual leadership who then actually acts on issues and is happy to take the first step. We are at time here, basically, Andrew, but I do want to make sure I'll ask you two more questions that we're asking all of our guests here. And the first one is, what is your favorite story of a particular leader or organization that had a big impact on either yourself or society at large? You know, I have to refer back to the Kellogg story, the General Mills story, working with those folks. They really took it seriously. They really did the analysis. They brought in their scientists and uh, and came to the same conclusions we did, and then they took action. And so I, I was really, really impressed with the two organizations and how they handled it. But ultimately, I remember we had this uh, PhD agronomist from General Mills on a webinar that we were doing when we released the report. And what he kept stressing is the reason General Mills is doing this is shifting to regenerative ag. It's to have a resilient supply chain. We need the farmers we work with to deliver the crops so we can deliver our products. And regenerative ag just simply is better in a flood that holds the soil and better in a drought. It holds the water. They're able to deliver. And so we want a resilient supply chain. So the fact that it's self-serving and about serving their customers, that means that it's part of the DNA of the company. It's not just window dressing. It's substantive. Fair enough. And can you give our listeners one piece of advice that they can make part of their leadership toolkit and start applying today to set them up for more positive societal impact? If you're a board director, really listen to your shareholders. We have the best intentions for the company in mind. Look at our research. Look at why we're doing this. And also look at your position in the whole sector, that we want you to to really perform well for all the stakeholders and that really your employees are so important. That's your culture is so important to attract the best and the brightest and retain the best and the brightest employees. That is the most critical thing. That is what a company is. And so just take it really seriously. We're not doing this for any other reason than we want to see you succeed. And so build the relationship. Absolutely. And from personal experience, I think there's a lot of very well-meaning directors out there who often miss a little bit of guidance. What should we do next? And I think that a lot of them actually want to provide for positive change as well. So thank you so much for this conversation. It was really fascinating. Andrew Behar, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast and be part of our growing community committed to making a positive impact. Visit our website at boardreport.org for additional resources 
and stay up to date with the latest reports, intelligence and conversations.